All right, we are starting a new series today in the book of Revelation, okay? I know you're all excited, all right? So we're starting a new series in the book of Revelation. Just a warning on the front end, this introduction sermon is going to be a little bit longer than our normal sermons. And so uh, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we just say, hey, the sermon's going to be a little bit longer because there's just a lot of work that needs to be done with various books of the Bible uh, because of our cultural context, but because of that book itself. And so, so we're starting the book of Revelation. We're going to be in it until Advent. And so we uh, in Redemption Church, if you don't know Redemption Church, it's a multi-congregational church across the state of Arizona. And we kind of get together as lead pastors and sometimes even others and kind of talk through what series, what books of the Bible or what series that we want to do together. And when Revelation was suggested and there was like kind of like a mini vote in the room of us lead pastors voting on if we should do Revelation, everyone voted yes and no one voted no, to which I said to the whole room, we've gotten too cocky. Like we've just, we've gotten too cocky. Like we're, we're unhesitatingly raising yes to the book of Revelation. And so I just want you to know that, that it comes from a, a bad place uh, <laughs> that we've Um, pick this book. And the reason why I say we've gotten too cocky is because the book of Revelation, it has actually confounded Christians basically for 2,000 years. Like almost, not maybe quite 2,000 years, but for the almost the, as long as Christianity has been a thing, almost as long, it's confounded Christians. You even get guys like John Calvin, who just writes commentaries for every book of the Bible. That's the sort of confidence John Calvin had. He's like, I could do it. And then he gets to Revelation, he goes, I don't know what to do with this book. And he doesn't even write a commentary for it, right? Can you imagine? Like, my life's work, I'm okay with leaving that one. Like, I'm okay with leaving that one to the side. And so I think uh, the book of Revelation has really confounded Christians for millennia now in all sorts of ways. And so my guess is that most of us in this room, at least, I think most of us in this room, the way that we read the book of Revelation is we kind of just ignore it right? We read through it maybe once a year or once every three years when it's in our Bible reading plan, and then we go, I don't, what is going on, right? Like, I can't wait to get out of it. And then you're back in Genesis, and you're like, no, what is going on? And so uh, you, we just, I, I, my guess is most of us kind of ignore the book of Revelation, push it to its side. And part of that might be also, not just because the book itself is difficult, but I would contend that a lot of a, American Christians read the book of Revelation very differently than how we read it. In fact, I, I would contend that maybe a lot of us in the room are uncomfortable with how a lot of American Christians read the book of Revelation. And so if I was going to put into meme form the way I think a lot of American Christians read the book of Revelation, it would be this meme, okay? <laughs> this is the Charlie Day meme, and Charlie Day is in a TV show, and he's making a parody of, of a movie, A Beautiful Mind, where they walk in this guy's office, and he has newspapers and pictures and all kinds of things all over the walls with red strings connecting to people, to things, and what they know from the movie, A Beautiful Mind, is none of these connections are real. They're all just kind of in his head, and so this is why that meme is a, a great joke parody meme, but I think Truly, I think a lot of Americans, the way that they read the book of Revelation, and honestly, I don't blame them because this is how they've been taught to read the book of Revelation, I think they read it like that, making lots of connections to things in the newspapers and people where there aren't actually 
any connections. In fact, scholars on the book of Revelation, they talk about this. Uh, Scott McKnight, who's a, a great scholar on the book of Revelation, and Cody Matchett, who wrote a book together, they call this way of reading Revelation, this sort of speculative reading of Revelation. Like, you're reading Revelation to speculate on what you think is going on in present day, especially in, like, geopolitical sorts of of things. Now, there's a, another scholar, Michael J. Gorman, who is probably one of the most renowned scholars when it comes to the book of Revelation. And what he says is that sometimes when people read the book of Revelation in that sort of speculative way, he says it's so problematic that he, he says it's irresponsible. He says reading the book of Revelation that way is irresponsible. He says, he even goes farther in his book. Remember, this is him, not me. I'm just repeating him. He says... He says, at times, it's even unchristian, and it's unhealthy for the church. So, what I just described, though, I'm not describing from afar. I, I hate when pastors kind of make caricatures of other groups of people and kind of just blast them for a laugh. It's fun, but I don't, you know, I, I don't like that. I don't uh, describe it from afar. That way of reading the book of Revelation is what I grew up steeped in. I'm not saying from afar. I saw this way of reading Revelation in depth, right? When I was in junior high, I offered my junior high youth group to teach on the book of Revelation because I had read a lot of the Left Behind books, okay? <laughs> this is how steeped in Revelation I was growing up, and this sort of reading of Revelation growing up is I've read all the Left Behind books. I'll take it further. I'm going to sound like Paul when he's like, I'm, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'll take it farther. There's a youth version of the Left Behind books, and I read most of those as well. So not only did I read the adult ones, I read the youth ones just to, I don't know, torture myself, okay? Fun fact, I always wished I could be left behind, okay? There was, I don't know, something in me that wanted to assassinate the Antichrist. I don't know. So um, <laughs> I wish that was just a joke. <laughs> I wish that was a joke. That was sixth grade me reading... <laughs> Tribulation force, and so I, when I say this, and I may say these things about Revelation and saying that that way of reading Revelation is irresponsible, it's because I used to read Revelation that way. It's because I was steeped in churches that read Revelation that way, and, it was, and I saw the, the, the problematic things that happened when you began to read Revelation that way. And so, my guess is a lot of us have reacted to that way of reading Revelation by not reading at all. And what I want to do is I want to look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation. I want to reread what it says. Look what it says. It says, blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Right away in the book of Revelation, it doesn't give you a verse saying, this is going to get weird and you can ignore it. It says right away, blessed is the person that reads this and listens to it and obeys it, meaning that God will bless them in some way, that there is a goodness from God that comes from reading this book and trying to live out this book. And so God actually wants to use the book of Revelation to bless us, not to confuse us. 
And so here, how, how will we approach this book? That's a very difficult book that people have had a hard time with for millennia. How are we going to approach this book? I want to talk about a few of the ways that I, that I want us together to approach this book. Some of them are practical, but here are some of the ways that I want us to approach this book. First, we're going to take it, uh, we're going to take 15 weeks to be in this book. And we're not going to go verse by verse in this book. We're going to read it more thematically, okay? Sometimes we do this in series. Sometimes we go verse by verse, like we just did in 1 John. But sometimes we kind of uh, take a few chapters at a time or a whole chapter at a time and talk about it a little bit more thematically. So that's first how we're going to approach it, just in a practical sense. But then how are we going to approach it in the sense of like trying to hear from God, uh, this book of Revelation? Here's, here's the first thing. My first suggestion is you dive deeper into scholarship, meaning books, on the book of Revelation. We've got books out at the Connect Desk that I think is the easiest, most approachable book for anyone trying to dive deeper on the book of Revelation. In fact, you could put up some of the three books that I'm going to suggest that you guys read. The one that we have right out there at the Connect Desk table, a handful of them, is called Revelation for the Rest of Us. It's by two authors, Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett. If you want that book, if you think you're really going to actually read that book and dive deeper into Revelation, that is one of the best books to dive deeper into Revelation and read it that might shift some of your paradigms on the book of Revelation. So as you're going out, stop by the Connect Desk, grab that book. If we run out of them all today, I'll put more out next week, more than likely, so that we can dive more deeper into the scholarship. Uh, these other two books that are up here, Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael J. Gorman, another great book. Uh, the Theology of the Book of Re Revelation by Richard Bauckham is actually my favorite book of these three that I read on it, um, but it's probably the most technical. Uh, at least that's what Pastor Kyle says. And so, um, and so, and I agree, it is the most technical. And so, but he said that to me this week, and I was like, I better make sure to say that. So, um, uh, these books are cheaper on Kindle than they are physical copies. And so if you need me to get you like a Kindle gift card to buy some of these, just let me know. Um, but I, here's the thing about the book of Revelation. We've heard all kinds of stuff growing up on this. So we come with our own kind of predisposed thoughts on this. If you're not going to do deep scholarship of what this book is trying to say, which is one of the most complicated books in the Bible, then I, like you're just going to be confused this whole time. Like, you're just going to feel like, ah, I, I don't know if what Anthony's saying is right. Like, we, we need to together be willing to do good and deep scholarship on this book. So those are the books. There's plenty out at the Connect Desk after this, okay? So that's the first way I hope we approach it. Uh, the second way I hope we approach it is this. We might disagree. And this part's going to be crazy, and that's okay, okay? <laughs> that's okay. We, we might disagree, and that's okay. Because I, 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 I don't really want to get in arguments about it. I don't, I don't want to get in arguments about it. Church folk, not you guys, but church folk, they tend to, when their pastor disagrees with them, they tend to want to sit the pastor down and pound them into theological submission, okay? Not you guys, okay? Not you guys. Uh, and I'm not going to just, we're not going to do that, okay? I'm all for healthy dialogue, even healthy disagreement. I'm all for disagreement and talking through it. But I'm not for using theology to pound me in submission. And then it's just, it's like, it feels like I'm on those like trials the martyrs are on. They're like, say what I think. And it's like, I don't think that though. Say it or you're dead, like type of a thing. And so we're not going to do that in here. Okay, we're not going to do that. That is actually emotionally immature for us to do to our pastors and our leaders who disagree with us. Okay, again, healthy dialogue, great. Healthy disagreement, 
totally good and great. Hours and hours of discussion about this, kind of going back and forth and never actually changing our opinions, that's not healthy in my opinion. So, um, so we're not gonna do that. We're, we might disagree, that's okay. I'm not gonna sit and argue about it, okay? Um, the, the next way that we're gonna approach this book, we, might, we won't be able to know everything that's being communicated in the book of Revelation. But we're going to do our best to talk about what is being communicated. I actually think a good chunk of it, a lot of it, is much more clear than we realize. But we're going to be okay that there's some mystery. There's some mystery. There's some symbols that, that don't make sense to today's world that we've never kind of quite uncovered what they mean. And so we're going to be okay with some of the mystery, but we're going to try our best to stick with what we do know for sure. And so if you're in this series and you're kind of coming each week, and you're like, well, I don't know what that is or what that is or what that is. It's either I didn't explain it because of time or because I'm like, I just, I don't know. As I read lots of scholarship on this, I don't know. I don't know what this means. So those are some of the ways that I think we should approach that series, okay? Here's why I give all of that kind of an intro before we get started. Do you guys know I, like, every few months, I just get a letter in the mail, and it's like, and this is real, to our church, but usually addressed to me, which makes me think I, I might be getting murdered soon, and it's from different people. It's from people I've never met before, and they're just like, this is how you need to treat, like, teach Revelation or else. Like, and maybe they don't say or else, but they're, they're just these like, intense, crazy letters. And that has made me realize, I think we've got some wrong ways we're reading Revelation. If I'm getting these kind of creepy letters all the time, I'm not getting them about the Ephesians, right? Like, I'm getting them about Revelation. And so I think it's really good that we're going to spend some time in this series because I think a lot of the teaching on Revelation out there, at its worst, leads to people just sending pastors they find on websites letters about all kinds of, of, of their crazy theories. And so, uh, so this is really important for us. So here's what we're going to do today. Take a drink. And then um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, just half of 5 today, actually, of Revelation chapter 1. And then we're going to hop down. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 of Revelation chapter 1. And then the whole sermon is going to be this. It's going to be eight key terms that will help us in our reading of Revelation. Eight key terms. You can tell that I'm not going to be a very good Revelation preacher because if I was really good, I would have made it seven because seven is used all the time in Revelation, okay? I was fighting for, I was like, I can't, I got to do eight. So I'm not that good, all right? You can tell the other people, is he good at? No, he's not. He did eight instead of seven. Foolish preacher. And so eight key terms in the book of Revelation that will help us in this series to understand the book of Revelation, okay? So let me take another drink. It's hot up here. And uh, yeah, so um, let's hop into it. Revelation chapter one, we'll be right in verse one. We'll read halfway through verse five and then we'll hop down to verse nine. If you're new to the church, Revelation, really easy to find in the Bible, last book, okay? Very easy. Here it is, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Let's hop down to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Okay, we'll stop there for now. Okay, key terms, eight key terms. Key term number one, John. Key term number one, John. John, church history and tradition says the John that mentions himself here is the John who is the disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 who hung out with Jesus. Church history and tradition says that. Uh, I actually really appreciate church history and tradition and think it's strong. Uh, I think there's a lot to be benefited in trusting church history and tradition. That being said, a lot of good and strong scholarship uh, says it's probably not John for a variety of reasons. It's just some guy named John. This is part of why I know Christianity is true. They, they essentially like writing down what they saw and everybody had the same name. Like if you're making it up, you're like, give him like a different name. Like so it just doesn't. And so uh, we don't know. It could be John that hung out with Jesus. It could be a different John, but wh- how, whoever he is, we know he's a leader in the church. And here's what's important for us to know about John. He was a Jewish Christian that was deeply, deeply steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Old Testament. He was deeply steeped in the Old Testament, and so you're going to see in the book of Revelation tons of allusions, tons of references to books of the Old Testament, particularly what we call the prophets from the Old Testament. And so key term number one, John. He's who wrote it, okay? Moving right along, key term number two, okay? Key term number two, end times, okay? Key term number two, end times, Revelation is known as an end times book, and everybody uses it to speculate, not everybody, but a lot of people use it to speculate about the end times. Usually, in my experience, people use it to speculate about the last seven years of the earth. And part of that is probably because of some of the verses that I just read right here, where they mention things that must soon take place, or where he says, for the time is near, right? Those are both, I read both of those phrases in this opening passage. And so this sort of speculating about the last few years of the earth, this sort of left-behind theology, as I've called it, uh, they often say that Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel and these other books, they talk about the end times. They talk about the very end times of the earth, the last seven years before God returns, before Jesus returns. And often, how they label those last few years of the earth, and again, they do this in a lot of different ways. So I'm just kind of going the left behind route in what I'm describing right now. They do this in a lot of different ways, but a lot of times they even split up those seven years into three and a half year periods, and they call it the tribulation and the great tribulation, okay? So why do I say all that? Well, Here's my problem of if Revelation is about the end times and about the tribulation, as a lot of end times people say. If you remember what we just read in verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Which means the tribulation that a lot of the end times theologians love to talk about has been going on since John wrote this. 
right? He's, it, it's been going on since John wrote, hey, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation. Now, tribulation in that day and time, it, just, it simply just meant like persecution. It meant suffering of the church. It even kind of meant like pressure that the church was experiencing. And so here's why end times is a key term for us today. End times, or the last days, is the last period of history before Christ returns. It's the last period of history before Christ returns. You are going to find lots of verses in the New Testament that say, the time is near, the time is at hand, it's the last days. But the way that the New Testament talks about the end times is not as a far-off, end-of-history type thing, unless they're talking about like the judgment of God or Jesus returning. But the way they often use that is saying, hey, this has started now with Jesus' work on the cross and the resurrection and sending the Holy Spirit. Part of why we know that is, if you, do you remember the story in Acts 2 where everybody's speaking in tongues all of a sudden because this Holy Spirit has filled them. There's tongues of fire on their head. And everybody thinks they're drunk because they, they're like, why are you saying all these weird things? But really, they're able to speak these other languages that people nearby could hear talking about God. Well, when Peter gets up to say, hey, we're not drunk, he says, he quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament, which Joel says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on men and women. So Peter, one of the first major leaders of the church, when he's talking about the end times, or he's talking about the last days, as more of the biblical authors put it, he's talking about something that started at least by that day by that day of the Holy Spirit being poured out on him. I think that this end times key term might be really important for us because this is not how Scripture is shown to us very often. We haven't been shown that the end times or the last days, as the Bible refers to them, have been going on for 2,000 years. Which means, guys, they could go on for another 2,000. No, 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 Anthony. They could. Right? I hope they, again, I hope they end it somewhere in the middle of this sermon or something like that. I, like, I hope, that's what I hope. I hope Jesus returns. But, but the, the, the end times, the last days, the, the, it's basically the chunk in history, the last work of God in history, which is to draw everyone he can into himself to follow him before Jesus returns. And he's on a global mission to do that. Okay? That's the true last days in the New Testament. The Bible does not talk about the end times or the last days the way many American churches and American Christian authors do. But Revelation does talk about how God is is guiding all of history until he returns, particularly history within empires, large empires, okay? All right, so that's end times. That's all we're going to talk about that. Uh, next three key terms. Here's the thing to know about the next three key terms. They are so crucial, so crucial for us understanding the book of Revelation. If we don't understand these key terms on their terms, then we will not be able to read the book of Revelation very well. In fact, I almost wanted to do the whole sermon just on these three, t- three terms, drop a mic, and then leave, right? Like that's all I wanted to do because I, these terms are so important for us understanding the book of Revelation. And so the next three terms that we, we talk about, please pay more attention, but know this, the terms that we're about to talk about, the next three key terms, they are the genres of literature that Revelation is. Revelation is a genre of literature. Here's, if you don't know this about the Bible, each book of the Bible is a genre of literature, 
And you have to know the genre in order to read it and understand it well. If you don't know the genre of a particular book, one of the 66 books in the Bible, if you don't know that genre very well, you won't interpret it right. You won't understand it right. So take, for example, the way you read the Psalms and the poetry and the songs and the lyrics of the Psalms and how you interpret that is very different than how you interpret the, the prose arguments that Paul makes in his letters to the Ephesians or the Colossians, right? Like you, you interpret that differently and you understand that differently because of the genres and knowing that those different genres. And so if you're not doing that, I highly encourage you to do that. It will help you re to read the Bible better. And so Revelation, here's what's really fun about the book of Revelation. It tells you what genres it is. Like, not all the books of the Bible tells you what genre it is. You kind of have to figure it out from reading it and looking at good scholarship and that kind of a thing. Revelation says, here's what I am. And so we can know that as we read Revelation, we should be interpreting it and reading it and listening to its messages through those particular genre lenses, okay? It's hot, guys. You get to talk about Revelation, fire brimstone situation. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um... So, uh, the next three key terms, genre, they are the genres of Revelation, so listen carefully, okay? Key term number three, apocalypse or revelation. Apocalypse or revelation is key term number three. So right there in verse one, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our English translations, they say revelation because when they first were making the translations of the Bible into English, there wasn't this there wasn't a good, apocalypse wasn't really a popular word. It wasn't a really well-known word. Even though in the Greek it's apocalypse, and apocalypse uh, would probably be a better word to use there. They said, hey, we've got to use a different word that, that better represents that so that the people reading it know it. And so they use this word revelation, which actually is actually a really good word. Because even in the term apocalypse has this idea of revealing something, making something known, okay? And so apocalypse. This is one of the main forms of genre, of literary genre, that the book of Revelation takes. And so what is apocalypse? We know that word to be like, at the end of time, all these bad things happening, all these apocalyptic movies or whatever, but apocalypse as a genre is very different, okay? To explain apocalypse as a genre, I actually want to use some art to do that, okay? So um, let's put up this picture from Banksy called Cash Machine Girl, okay? Uh, this is by Banksy. It's called Cash Machine Girl. Uh, he drew this, I think, somewhere in the UK. And as you can see, it's a picture of an ATM, only it's a little different. This ATM has a robotic arm, very clawed and violently, almost like picking up a little girl, okay? So here's what we know about this painting. Banksy paints it, and if you know Banksy at all, he, he loves to just paint things that he likes, but he also likes to send messages in his paintings, okay? And here's what we know. There's no literal cash machine or ATM that has a robotic arm that grabs a little girl, right? I don't think there is. So he's not painting something he has literally seen, but he is trying to paint something that he thinks is real. So what he thinks is real, he thinks that consumerism and money and even powerful banks sometimes are so powerful that even the little girl walking by is in their grasp. That's what Banksy's trying to communicate with this piece of art. It's not something he, lit, he saw literally, but it is something he has seen that he thinks is real, okay? That's 
apocalypse. That's apocalypse. Okay, maybe that doesn't make sense. Let's do another painting. This one is called Rage the Flower Thrower. Rage the Flower Thrower. So, you see, it's, it's a guy that we've seen, we've like seen videos of people dressed like this. They're dressed like what looks like revolutionaries or rioters, uh, and they're often throwing explosives of some sort. They're often, when we've seen them in real life, they're throwing like Molotov cocktails, all kinds of different stuff. But in this painting, what we see is he's throwing a beautiful bouquet of flowers, right? Now, here's what's interesting about this uh, painting. Uh, he actually, the first time this painting showed up, it showed up on the West Bank Wall. The West Bank Wall, if you don't know what the West Bank Wall is, it is the wall in Israel separating uh, the Palestinians from Israel. Okay, and I know you're freaking out because Americans love to act like they know about things that they don't know about, but... <laughs> But let's just take it for what it is. This is a, a piece of art that this artist is putting on this West Bank wall. It just shows up out of nowhere. Now, there's a lot of conflict between Palestine and Israel. What we know about this piece of art is there is no literal man named Rage going around throwing bouquets of flowers, right? So, and then when this pops up on this West Bank wall, this this sign of division between the Palestinians and Israelis, you know that Banksy is trying to send a message. And the, he, he's, in some way, and I, don't, I honestly don't know specifically, in some way he's trying to condemn the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And I think he's also trying to say, what if peace was real? What if instead of using violence, we used beauty? What if we dive that way? We know there's no literal man throwing flowers in this way, but we know that Banksy wishes there was. He wishes there was peace in this way between Israel and Palestine. This is apocalypse. Apocalypse is this genre that uses images and symbols and even numbers at times to not talk about literal things, but talk about things that it sees that, it, that are really going on in society, to reveal what is really going on in societies. And John's messages, often in the book of Revelation, are politically charged, just like Banksy's are. A lot of Banksy's messages are politically charged because he is trying to say something. He's trying to elicit something in the person who sees his images. I would say John was doing the same thing. He gives these symbols, these images, these numbers to elicit something in us, to get us to imagine something, to get us even to imagine the symbols and see them much like we see these symbols. That's apocalypse. Apocalypse wants you to feel something. It wants you to see something. It wants to use your imagination. It wants to give you an image and it wants you to sit with that image like you would sit with a piece of art. Apocalypse will disturb us at, some, at times. It will. And then this is really key. Apocalypse isn't literal. Apocalypse isn't literal. But it is using symbols and images and numbers from the Old Testament and from Roman society itself to communicate things that are not literal, but things that are real things that are true. Apocalypse unveils and reveals and shows what is true, 
what is truly happening, particularly in empires. Okay, so Apocalypse uses these images to do all these things. You'll see frequent uh, disturbing images. You're like, why is that in there? It's, it's to get your imagination going. It's to get you to think about the image more. Uh, but it also uses numbers in all sorts of ways. Uh, I, I really like how McKnight talks about how Apocalypse uses numbers. It uses numbers in the book not as statistics but as symbols because back then numbers had more symbolic imagery than they do today. Uh, McLaughlin, he was an accountant in seminary. He says that numbers in Revelations, in Revelation, oh, I said Revelations, oh, like uh, the, the chief sin. It's just Revelation, by the way. Um, Ma- McLaughlin says numbers in Revelation function more like adjectives than they do as actual numbers. Okay? So this is apocalypse. John uses all these things to reveal, to unveil, to show what is going on throughout history in empires until Jesus returns. That's apocalypse. We're going to see a lot of Old Testament images and Roman, first century Roman images being used to unveil how God is guiding history, to unveil what's going on even spiritually in different ways in the world. Okay, and they're they're going to be startling, and they're going to be hard to interpret because we're 2,000 years away from them. And, that, and that's why Revelation can be so difficult. So that's key term number four or three. That's apocalypse. Hugely, hugely important for us understanding the book of Revelation. Okay? Let's go. Key term number four, literary prophecy. Literary prophecy. Prophecy in regards to the Bible and the book of Revelation, it is often a confusing term. So first, let's look at prophecy in the Old Testament. Prophecy, the Old Testament genre of prophecy, were words of comfort and words of challenge that God gave to a person to give to the people of Israel and often even implicated and talked to other nations in the midst of it. But they were always words of comfort and words of challenge, uh, trying to say, hey, this is where you guys need to turn back to God. That's Old Testament prophecy. Just, you can read, we uh, usually say those prophets are called the major prophets and the minor prophets in the Old Testament. You could go read those and see you're seeing challenge, you're seeing comfort from God to a person, to the people of Israel, okay? In the New Testament, prophecy kind of changes a little bit. Prophecy becomes God speaking these oracles to different people in the church, and they often would share these kinds of oracles or messages or words of knowledge to the church in in their worship time together, sometimes outside of that worship time, but when they were together, that's when they would speak these these messages from God. Prophecy also in the New Testament is often like these visions that God would give, like you see this with Peter, I believe it's Acts 9, where, where he sees this image of the sheet and these animals and these different things, and that image was to help Peter see what God was doing, and he was to communicate that image, I believe, to, to others. And so visions even kind of fall into this New Testament prophecy category. John in Revelation seems to be combining the Old Testament genre of prophecy and the New Testament use of prophecy. He had these, he says, hey, I'm all, I was on this place, Patmos, and God speaks these visions and images and things to me to tell you guys. And then he writes them down. So he has these oracles spoken from God to him, all kinds of visions shown to him, and then he writes them down in the style of the Old Testament prophets and often makes all these allusions to the Old Testament prophets. And so in the book of Revelation, because it's literary prophecy, we're going to see a lot of words of comfort. We're going to see a lot of words of challenge. 
We're going to see poetry being used because the prophets sometimes use poetry. We're going to see poetry being used to communicate things. We're going to see John call out, and really God, through John, calling out the people of God, the Christians. And then John also calling out Roman society itself that they were in. That's prophecy when it comes to Revelation. Prophecy in Revelation is not so much about predicting and speculating what president you don't like is the Antichrist as it is about God, speaking on God's behalf. So prophecy, prophecy is speaking on God's behalf, not predicting on God's behalf. And yet God, he, in the midst of this prophecy of Revelation, he's going to use non-literal symbols and images to let us know that he is in charge of history and it will ultimately end in him restoring all things. So he is still talking about history, but in a way to comfort us or challenge us. Okay? So that's key term number four. Key term number five. Key term number five. A circulatory letter. A circulatory letter, meaning a letter that goes on a circuit of some sort. Okay? It goes from one place to another and everybody's supposed to read it. So the book of Revelation is also a letter that was sent to those seven churches that we read in verse 11. You have to remember, the church back then wasn't quite as institutionalized as it is today. So when this letter was going to those different cities, it wasn't just going to like seven different churches as we know churches, it was going to whole cities of Christians. And so whole cities of Christians were supposed to read this letter of Revelation. It's a letter. It claims to be a letter. The way many Americans treat the book of Revelation is not like a letter written to Christians in the first century. They treat it like this secret code book that the Christians were supposed to hold on to and pass on from generation to generation to generation till we open it and figure out how to defeat Voldemort. And that's just not what Revelation is. It's a letter. It's a letter written to real people in a real context. Right? Read any of the letters in the New Testament. They're written to real people in real situations about the real things going on in their lives. So everything in this letter was written for a people of the first century. Everything written in this letter was written to people back then. But because Revelation is God's word, and because the Christians of the first few centuries put it into God's word as part of the canon, part of the Bible, they kept sharing it as God's word. This letter is not just for them, but it's also for us, just like we take any other New Testament letter. It's also for us. God is somehow speaking to those people 2,000 years ago and to us through the same letter. Okay, so to understand Revelation well, you actually have to understand their first century Roman context well. If we're going to understand Revelation well, we'll have to understand those things well. And I say that to clarify, a lot of people think to understand Revelation well, you have to know all about the current geopolitical going-ons in the world in order to understand Revelation well. I, and I would say good scholars would say, no, you need to understand the first century well to understand the book of Revelation well. It's goofy to think that this letter was written to a people that were just supposed to hold on to it for 2,000 years until a group of people in a different country were going to be like, oh, no, no, we got it, guys. We got it. Like, we can understand it now. It was a real letter to real people in a real context, okay? 
So those are the three genres of Revelation. Apocalypse, prophecy, and it's a letter. We need to know all of those genres in order to understand Revelation well. Does that make sense? All right. Those are maybe the most important key terms when it comes to reading the book of Revelation. So key term number six. Let's keep moving. Key term number six, the slain lamb. Key term number six, the slain lamb. A bloodied, sacrificed lamb becomes one of the central figures of the book of Revelation. I love how McKnight and Matchett talk about the slain lamb in the book of Revelation. This is what they say. The quote will be on the screen. It says this, the lamb is at the center of the action in Revelation. The lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has many names and attributes, including Jesus, Messiah, faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, He loves us. He liberates us. He's the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come. He's like a son of man. He's the first and the last. He's the living one. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He's lion, lamb, logos. He's light. All of these represent the Lord over all the lords and the king over all kings. He is the Savior, Redeemer by his blood. This book unabashedly wants you to worship the Lamb to focus on the Lamb, to live like the Lamb. This book wants you to worship the Lamb, focus on the Lamb, live like the Lamb. There are many beauties of Jesus described in this book, and often they're around this image of a slain Lamb, a graphic image. We read this book because Jesus, the slain Lamb, loves us and has liberated us. Okay, key term number seven, Babylon. Key term number seven, Babylon. Babylon is also a central character or figure. It's almost like a character in the book of Revelation. And when John is talking about Babylon, when he uses the word Babylon in Revelation, there is no question at all that he is talking about Rome. Babylon in the book of Revelation is Rome, the real empire that ruled at that time it would have been clear to anyone hearing Revelation or reading Revelation to know that John was talking about Rome. And what we see about Babylon slash Rome in the book of Revelation is Babylon is animated by evil. What what Revelation really shows us is that Satan and, and his friends and his evil is what animates and controls how Babylon operates and how Babylon works. Rome in that day, it demanded a sort of civil religion. This is really important for us to know in regards to Revelation. It demanded a civil religion. Sure, you could have your religion as long as your religion mixed all the things you needed to mix with this Roman civil religion. As long as you worshipped our emperor this way we say you need to worship Caesar. As long as you do the things that we say you need to do. As long as you live the ways we say you need to live. And and you make that part of how your religion says to live. They demanded, Rome really demanded, people's religion and religious practices to be tied to the Roman citizenry. So they would fundamentally want all religions to change their religion in some way. And you can see... Why Revelation, then, is a very political message. Because the book of Revelation is very political. 
God, through John, condemns nearly every operating principle of Babylon, which was Rome. And he calls for Christians not to stain themselves by participating in the ways of Babylon, by, by participating in the ways of Rome that Rome required. Essentially, it was calling for Christians to live like, kind of like treasonous lives. I think a better word is dissident lives, if you want to look that up later. Because John was saying, don't let the ways of Babylon infect your ways as Christians. And so Babylon is described as this empire animated by Satan and evil. And it, and it has very specific descriptions of what's wrong with Babylon. Here's some of the things it talks about Babylon as, as being wrong or evil. Babylon is, in Revelation, anti-God of the Bible. They're opulent and luxurious. They're murderous and using violence to get what they want. Babylon itself wants to be an image worth worshiping. They're economically oppressive and exploitive, and they're very arrogant. You're going to find all of those descriptions, maybe not phrased quite, quite like that, often using poetry and other things to describe Babylon in these ways, but you're going to see Babylon, which is Rome, described in all of those ways. Those seem to be the chief problems with Babylon that, that God wants John to condemn. So, if John is talking about Rome, why, it, why is he using the, the name, the city of Babylon? Why is he using that name then? Well, Babylon, it was also a real place, and it was a real city, and it was a real nation that oppressed the Jewish people at one point in their history. And Rome, they were a real oppressive empire over many nations, very similar to Babylon in a lot of ways. And so I think God and John use the term Babylon when they're really talking about Rome because Christians throughout all times and all places are supposed to realize that Babylon is a timeless trope that we can all apply. Here's what Scott McKnight says about Babylon. He says, each century has its Babylons. Each country has its Babylons and each state and city and yes, Church institutions and churches has the potential to re release the powers of Babylon. Or, as Richard Bauckham says, any society Babylon's cap fits must wear it. So part of the reason God and John use this term Babylon instead of Rome is to help us to be convicted by the Babylons in our own time and place. We are called in Christians in all times, in all places, to not mix Christianity with the ways of Babylon. Babylon was not just in the first century. It's not just at the very end of time. It shows up in all times and all places. Babylon is a timeless trope that we are to be discerning about, pay attention to. Okay? Okay, key term number eight. We're here. We got here. Key term number eight, I'm only a little bit out of breath. Key term number eight is discipleship. Key term number eight, discipleship. One of the key purposes of, purposes of this book is to disciple Christians into lamb people. In fact, I think it wants to disciple or train us into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. 
Okay, if I was going to pick four phrases, into discerning, dissident, worshiping witnesses. It wants to disciple us in those ways. It wants to train us to be Christians that are discerning, that are dissident to Babylon, that are worshiping the Lamb, that are witnesses to Jesus. This book wants us to discern the ways we've allowed the ways of Babylon to infect our lives and to infect our faith. That, to God, is disgusting. When we let the ways of Babylon infect our faith and infect our lives as Christians, that's disgusting to God. He wants us to repent of it. He wants us to discern that. This book, it wants to disciple us into dissident disciples, dissident of the empires that we live in. Essentially, with our lives, we as Christians are to oppose the Babylonian empire way of life. It wants to disciple us into a faith that's rooted in worshiping the Lamb, a life that is centered in worshiping the Lamb. You might be able to say all of life is all for Jesus. This book wants us to know. And it wants us to live now in the face of all kinds of evil, to live as if we are part of the new Jerusalem already, letting our lives and words, our lives and words be a witness to the Lamb, and who He is. That's what this book wants to do. It wants to disciple us into all of that. A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows after Jesus and becomes like Him. This book wants to do this sort of discipleship in us that I just mentioned. I have to say something. Because that's how the book wants to disciple us. At times, it's going to get uncomfortable in here when we're in this series. At times, the book of Revelation is asking us to look at our society and see how it is animated and by evil and living like Babylon and to never let those ways of our society infect how we live for Jesus, how we worship Jesus, how we act as a witness to Jesus. I think this is going to be hard because American Christianity, in my opinion, has very much let the ways of Babylon infect our faith. I, I really actually genuinely believe this. I like love you guys. And I've, I'm here because I feel like we're constantly not doing this in this room. But we are all prone to let Babylon infect our faith. And the Babylon that we're going to look at is our own society. And a lot of people don't like when pastors talk about the Babylonian-type issues with our society. Part of that comes from a goodness of of loving the place we're in and seeing the good and the creational things. But part of it comes from a blindness, not being willing to see the the blatant idolatry that runs through our society in all sorts of ways. And so this will be a little bit hard because I think the, the second for me as a pastor, the second that I start to kind of critique our society, the, the way that I think God's word would critique our society, the, the accusation that comes up is often Anthony's been politicized. You're politicized. You're just you're watching too much of this side of the news and you've been politicized. That's why you're saying that. You can't think for yourself. I know that. And so it only hurts my feelings a little bit, you can tell. And so... 
Here's what I'll say. We're all politicized, guys. Like, we've all been politicized. We as Christians are supposed to discern that and not allow it to affect us. But here's what I'll say, too. I hope I've been politicized by this. By the most political statement in the history of the world, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. I don't know if that's happened in a sermon before. That feels good. All right. Let's keep that going, guys. All right. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was a political statement because they used to say Caesar is Lord. So part of the fundamental foundation of the Christian faith where Christians going around taking the political phrase and going, no, it's Jesus instead. Jesus is Lord. So I hope I've been politicized by Jesus. I hope I've been lamicized, as I've said in Revelation. So one of my goals in this series, it's going to be to disciple Babylon out of us. The Babylon that we see on the right that mixes our faith with its conservative ways where you get this weird kind of cultish and strange thing that at times flat out misrepresents God. The Babylon that we see on the left that often convinces us that the Christian God is bad and that all of the beliefs of Christianity are are evil and wrong or, or the ones that aren't, their beliefs, their own left beliefs actually could be baptized into the Christian faith in some way even if they are anti-God. Or the Babylon that we see in the moderate, the moderate who lacks the boldness to stand up for what is right and to live as a witness that points to Christ and to his justice. I want to call out Babylon all in all of those places. I want to call out Babylon from all sides that our society tells us to pledge allegiance to. Much of our society and much of the American Christian faith is mixed up in the ways of Babylon. And we too often are swept up in participating in those ways ourselves. Revelation hopes to disciple us out of that. Okay? I want to give another kind of just personal thought about talking about this uh, while everybody's hearts are elevated. Um, as a pastor, I'm not looking to be political in the way, I think what, you re- what we really mean is partisan. Like a lot of times we're really bothered when pastors are partisan, one-sided. I'm not looking to be political or partisan. I am tr- genuinely like looking to preach the text. But we live in a society that idolizes political ideologies. Those are the new gods of the day, right? In uh, Isaiah's day, they carved out things to worship. In our day, we worship a metaphorical donkey or a metaphorical elephant. Like, that's what we worship. And so sometimes I see how the text just points out idolatry. I want to talk about it. And so I, I talk about idolatry in that sort of way that, that people are like, you're getting political. I'm going, these are the idols that we worship. I have to talk about these things. Usually it's, when I talk about those things, it's kind of met with, well, you're just angsty, you're angry, or, or you should just be quiet about it, or you've been politicized. And, and here's the thing, sometimes that's probably true. I'm not perfect, I'm not God. I probably am sometimes. But a lot of the times, I think I'm just like fairly representing what Scripture is trying to communicate. Just, you may not like it. And then again, sometimes it's annoying because pastors all the time 
can be very partisan. I've grown up in these churches. I've seen these churches. I know what it's like to be grow up in the American church and hear, like, all of a sudden you're hearing, like, a speech on the Constitution. You're like, what is going on right now? Like, that kind of a thing. Like, and, and so we can have a high sensitivity to that, and we think pastors should never talk about it. And because of all of that, because of all of those things, I think often when it comes to the idolatry, the political idolatry that we have, how most people want their pastors to deal with it is to go out at night and take down the idols. Here's what I mean. There's this story about Gideon in the New Testament where God says, okay, Gideon, I'm about to use you for this amazing work. Before you do it, I want you to go into your, the middle of your town. There's two idols there. I want you to tear down those idols. And Gideon's like, oh, okay. These things that they would worship as a town together. But he waits till night. And he goes out at night because he's too scared to do it in front of everybody, even though God told him to. Often I feel like that's what the American church would prefer from their pastors. Someone to tear down the idols at night when no one can see the pastor tearing them down. Or really, even to tear down the ones in the other towns. You could say the towns to the left of them or the towns to the right of them, right? Only those towns over to the right or only those towns over to the left. And do it at night so we don't see you doing it. But I don't want to be like Gideon. I don't want to be like Gideon. I want to be faithful to God's word, which means at times it's going to get uncomfortable in here. We're going to be looking at the Babylon-ness of America at times. We're going to be looking at that. And that's okay because that's what the book wants to do. It wants to disciple the Babylonness out of all of us. I want us to be a Lamasized people, not a politicized people. And so I'm going to be against letting the ways of Babylon infect our witness to Jesus. There are many ways, I think, that America wears the cap of Babylon, and some of those things will seem obvious to us, some of those things will not seem so obvious, some of those things will all be mad, maybe, that I'm bringing up. And it, just so you know, I don't know how this series is going to go. I don't know how much we're going to be talking about these things, but I do know the book of Revelation, so I, I have a hard time believing it won't come up. Welcome, welcome new students. Um, <laughs> just let us know. Let us know which churches. <laughs> we can tell you about the churches in town, what might be a better fit. Uh, just let us know. That's a, so that's, that's our introduction to Revelation. It is an apocalyptic, prophetic letter that disciples us into the way of, of the Lamb to be a witness to him and out of the evil Babylonian empire-like ways. I hope we will be able to hear its true message. I hope I personally keep it a Lamb-centered, Spirit-fueled message. So church, may we listen to the words of this prophecy and be blessed by them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation, even though we could have used some clarifying end notes, I feel like, God, uh, to help us many years later, but thank you for this, this book. Thank you for what you want to do in it through your word, God. It's your word to us. So God, help us to hear the message. Help me, God. I'm praying right now, genuinely, God, as I sit and my task for this people is to show them truly what your word says, please help me to not be politicized. Help me to be only politicized by the term Jesus is Lord. Help me to know, help me to be bold when I don't want to be bold, when it's pushing on the things that I'm scared about. 
Help me to be bold when I know there could be pushback. Help all of us, God, to have soft hearts. Help all of us, God, to have ears that can hear this message. Give us the ability to study this well. God, give us scholarship that points out what you're communicating in this. God, thank you for this book and thank you for, this, for your word to us in all times and places. Amen.